Well, we are continuing a series called Resilient Disciples, and right out of the gate, I just want to say thank you for your resilience in this season as things in our church are just so so different. You're doing great. You're hanging in there. We look forward to opportunities where we can gather in person and we anticipate some of those opportunities coming in the near future. It was about this time last year that I was, uh, went to Vancouver to hang out with a friend and it was starting to get dark and we were walking down a busy city street and I, I just looked up, I glanced up at this condo tower, really tall condo tower, and I noticed that in the corner unit close to me, in every unit, every floor, I could see the glow of blue from televisions on in every single corner unit. I was walking my dog in, in my neighborhood not that long ago and I came to this grassy area where there were a couple of park benches. And there was a young couple sitting uh, at one park bench uh, and they were both looking down at their phones. And then there was a, a guy uh, sitting at the other park bench and he was also looking down at his phone. And then just behind him, um, there had been a young dad pushing uh, his infant in a stroller but had stopped on the sidewalk and was looking down at his phone. Just beyond him, there was a parked car and there was a man sitting in the parked car on his phone. As I was standing there with my dog and just glancing across the scene, I could see five people. All of them were motionless, looking down at their phones with only their thumbs moving. And it was kind of eerie. And you know what? It, it wouldn't even have made sense even 10 years ago. So a question I have for us as we get started today is how do we reclaim real life in a world of devices? We've been referring to the context we live in as digital Babylon. It's a way of saying that we live in exile, as, as Peter is saying in 1 Peter. We live in exile. We live as foreigners. Our homeland is ultimately with Jesus. He is our king. His kingdom is our world. And yet we live in this time, in this place. And digital Babylon is what we call it because we are so influenced by the narratives of our culture, most of them coming through our screens. So how do we navigate digital Babylon as followers of Jesus who prioritize shaping our lives according to the will and the ways of Jesus? Well, that's ultimately the question of every follower of Jesus. What does it look like to follow him? And so that's the first practice of resilient disciples that we looked at a couple weeks ago. This practice of fostering and experiencing intimacy with Jesus. I read a story recently about a father noticing in his, his daughter, his school-aged daughter, a real growth in her spiritual maturity and, and her faith coming alive. And he asked her, hey, I've noticed this in you. What's been going on? And her response was, Dad, do you remember when you were praying about uh, a family to join our small group at our house and you were praying about that and then later that day we went to the hardware store and we ran into that guy from church and you invited him to our small group and now they're in it? Do you remember that? Yeah, I remember that. She's like, that was a miracle. And it was really interesting because she, she had grown up learning the Bible stories um, she, she knew what the Bible said about Jesus, but what really drove it home for her was her experience of Jesus. God was moving in that. I'm experiencing God in my life, and that really, really solidified things for her. Last week, we looked at the second critical practice for, 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 for um, 
for forming resilient disciples, and it has to do with developing the muscles of cultural discernment. I know very little about developing muscles, so I gave that one to Pastor Jonathan, and he handled it brilliantly. But the idea of developing the muscles of cultural discernment has to do with um, viewing the world through the lens of the Bible, not the other way around, viewing the Bible through the lens of the world. So we can be culturally discerning only so far as our lives are biblically saturated and informed. And so now we move on to the third practice for forming resilient disciples. And here's what it is. Forging meaningful intergenerational relationships. But I told you all those stories about screens at the beginning because forging meaningful intergenerational relationships is a lot harder than it sounds. In fact, I would argue that we are living in the most difficult moment in human history to actually forge meaningful intergenerational relationships. There is so much working against that in digital Babylon. There was a study done recently and it asked parents, what makes it more difficult to raise kids today? Well, overwhelmingly, 65% of them said technology is what makes it more difficult to raise kids today. Technology and social media. Ask the question of how often tech disrupts the dinner table or for how many families tech disrupts dinner table, dinner time with the family, a phone call, a text message, somebody looking at their phone, looking at screens. 45% of families responded, yes. When asked the question, do you sleep with your phone next to you? 70% of adults, 82% of teens, and 72% of preteens responded that they do. 28% of American adults are online almost constantly. The average 25 to 34 year old spends two and a half hours per day on social media. Well, get, catch this. Well, the average eight to 18 year old spends nine hours on social media per day. I tell you all this because some, another phenomenon has been happening in recent years. There has been a steady rise in loneliness. Adults are twice, catch this, Adults are twice as likely to say they are lonely compared to a decade ago. So in, in some ways, we're more connected than we've ever been, but in other ways, what we are discovering is that we are far less connected at the same time than we have ever been. But not only is there a steady rise in loneliness, with all the instant everything, we've grown accustomed to the, um, a steady rise in individualism that has resulted in me-first expectations. So in real-life conversations, the average adult talks about themselves 30% of the time. In conversations in real life, they talk about themselves 30% of the time, but on social media, they talk about themselves 80% of the time. And that's begun to change us. We've just begun to think about and talk about, be obsessed with, invented the selfie, <laughs> all of this stuff because we are self-absorbed and digital Babylon is, is creating that in us. And so the question I ask is how do we navigate digital Babylon as followers of Jesus who prioritize shaping our lives according to the will and ways of Jesus, not according to the norms that surround us in everyday life? 
we are in the midst of an epidemic of isolation, loneliness, and mistrust. But I, I actually want to propose to you today that the church is uniquely positioned to provide a comprehensive solution to this pandemic. But to be that solution as the church, we cannot be those who blend into our surroundings in digital Babylon and live the same ways and do all the same things. But instead what's required is that we are a group of people who are present with each other. Tough to do right now. <laughs> we can't gather in large groups and yet we still can have that relational presence face to face with a few and it's critical that we do. To not only be present with each other but also forging meaningful intergenerational relationships. And to do that, I believe, we need to be reminded both of our identity and our purpose as followers of Jesus. Our identity and our purpose. So first, we're gonna talk, uh, let me read 1 Peter chapter 2, verse nine, and then we'll begin to talk about our identity. This may be familiar to you if you've been around church for a while. It says, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness, into his marvelous light. When the apostle Peter wrote these words, when these were read by his original hearers, it would have shattered their categories. Peter has absolutely packed this verse with Old Testament references that had been used to describe Israel. But what he's doing in this text is he's using those descriptors to describe the church here. And in doing so, Peter is claiming for the church the fulfillment of the glorious promises of God. So let's look at our identity then. He starts by saying, you are a chosen race. So what's the chosen race? It's the church. And this race is unlike any other. It's a race that, that's not racial. It's, it, it's not black or white or brown per se. It's not a particular race that makes a Christian people. It's our chosenness that makes us a people. You are a chosen race. It's, it's not our merit that makes us a people. It's not our achievement. It's not our own excellence that makes us a people. It's not our greatness that makes us a people. It's our chosenness that makes us a people. The church is a chosen race, and it's not like the old races cease. Our diversity and cultural identity is a beautiful thing that will go on for all eternity. We see a window into the picture of heaven, praise and glory before the throne of God. And what's written in Revelation 7 is that all tribes and tongues and nations will be there. See, see, we can celebrate the diversity and cultural identity because it's, it's doing something that's, that's, that's revealing God in our diversity, but our identity in Christ as Christian and the church is supremely more beautiful. So what, what we're seeing here, a chosen race, we're seeing that God has chosen a new race of people, Christians, who have obtained membership in his new chosen race, not by physical descent from Abraham, but by coming to Jesus and believing in him. How do we become a part of the chosen race? We turn to Christ for life. 
Peter goes on to quote straight out of Exodus 19, verse six for the next two descriptors, a royal priesthood and a holy nation. In Exodus 19, verse six, it says, it refers to all of Israel as a kingdom of priests. It's interesting. All of Israel was meant to represent God among the nations. Now the tribe of Levi is where the, the, the office of priest would, be, would come from. All the priests who worked as priests in the temple, uh, Um, making intercession for the people before God and all of that came from the tribe of Levi. But generally speaking, what Exodus 19.6 is saying that the whole nation of Israel were meant to be priests in in the sense that they were meant to represent God to the nations. And that's the identity and call that Peter is placing on the church here. He's saying, you, Christian, you, church, are a royal priesthood. Because of Christ, our perfect and true high priest, which is what the book of Hebrews is all about, Because of Jesus, the whole church, everybody, is a priest. That means two things. It means we represent God to the world as witnesses of his grace, and it also means we represent the world to God. We can do that through the language of lament, looking out at the world and seeing its brokenness and praying through the pain towards God. It also means interceding for for those around us in the world and loved ones and people we want to see come to faith. We represent the world to God. What a calling. We as the church are meant to minister to each other and before God in such a way that it ministers to the world. It is the role of every believer to exhort and encourage and pray on behalf of others. But he doesn't stop there. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, he says next. Meaning this, our chosenness in Christ makes us a new race from all the people groups. And the perfection of Jesus and the forgiveness of sins that we receive when we come to him make us holy. We get Christ's righteousness. We are made holy. We are justified through Jesus. And yet we are to lean into that calling of being a holy nation and pursuing holiness. To be in Christ means to receive his record, his holiness. And it means to be an example of his holiness to the world. And so we strive to live like Jesus. So just as believers are a new spiritual race and a new spiritual priesthood, we're also a new spiritual nation based solely on allegiance to Jesus. When you give your life to Jesus, you become a part of his kingdom. Finally, this is wonderful. It says you are a people for God's own possession. Isn't that staggering? We are God's own special people. And we have this in common. We are a community, a holy nation, a gathering, a people, And our corporate identity is Jesus. I want you to think for a second about the transformation that the gospel brings. Think about the, the, when Peter's writing this letter, from the mistrust and disdain held between Jews and Gentiles, between nations and classes, locals and exiles, and then God breaks in in this new way and God has made a new people that transcend all of those old divisions. And that people are the church, 
That's the identity piece of who we are, a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. That's our identity. Now let's look at our purpose. It's not just that we get all that. We get to become all that. We are God's, God's prized possessions, right? And it stops there. No, why? That you, it goes on to say, may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. There's a purpose statement. There's a purpose behind the call, the identity, it's, it's to lean into calling. To proclaim his excellencies, simply put, is to speak of all God is and all God has done. Proclaim his excellencies, to speak into all God is and all he has done. I've been reading a psalm every morning to start the day and it's been challenging and reminding me the psalmists were so good at proclaiming the excellencies of God. They, they would just speak of the excellencies of God. Sometimes they'd start pretty tough, like, where are you, God? But by the end, they're like, oh, God, merciful, just, kind, beautiful. That's the calling on us. And we do that best as a people, declare the excellencies of God. We do that best as, a, as not simply individuals and, and sole proprietors working our way around, but as a diverse, united people who have Jesus and his grace and his indwelling Holy Spirit in common. You know, I'm convinced that one of the most compelling ways in our time that we can proclaim the excellencies of God is to put his kingdom community on display. A community so welcoming because Jesus welcomed us. A community so gracious with one another because Jesus extended his grace to us. A community so generous because Jesus gave everything for us. A community so selfless because Jesus came to serve us and gave us a model for service. A community so joyful because we have indestructible hope in Christ. A community that's not only like family, but is our truest family because through Christ, we together have been made sons and daughters of God and brothers and sisters with one another. When Emily and I were, my wife and I were pretty newly married, we, we moved to Vancouver to be a part of a church planting network and we got to be a part of a new church plant in East Vancouver and participate in it. And one of the things we did was we led a small group in our home and it's one of my favorite memories of that time. It was quite an eclectic little group. There was Emily and I and then there was a, a, a younger couple, a newlywed couple there as well. There were a couple young singles. There was a middle-aged couple in their 40s. There was a, a single uh, woman in her 50s. And then there was an older woman who actually uh, w was quite severely depressed and wasn't a follower of Jesus, but she liked hanging out with us and she was always there too. It was just such a fascinating time as, as we would sit in that living room. So often I would just look around and be like, ah, oh, this is the church, you know? This is such a great representation of the church. I've thought that often. What brought such an eclectic band of people together? The answer is Jesus did. What's our city made up of? Pretty eclectic band of people. What could possibly bring us together? The answer is that Jesus can. The answer is that Jesus is the one who can push against the powers of darkness and some of the things that we're struggling to live against 
in our moment. You know, Canadians are most likely to form friendships with people who are most like themselves. That's what comes naturally. That's our bent, and, and there's certainly nothing wrong with that. We're often drawn to people in some of our strongest friendships or people our own age and all of that, but typically also very much like us. That, that, that's, that's typical of the average Canadian. Interestingly, God chooses the unalike. God chooses people who wouldn't have been friends and they probably wouldn't have been friends because of the dividing walls that we see around us in, in modern culture. Typically, there's, there, there's a, um, because of our diversity in age or ethnicity or background or socioeconomic status, all of these kind of push against us forging friendships with those often quite different than ourselves. And yet in the church, we are made to be family with anyone and everyone who comes to Jesus from all walks of life. What other community of people can be so diverse and at the same time as close as brothers and sisters? Do you see the great remedy? Uh, that, that, the, 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 the soothing balm that could come uh, to our community through Christ in this moment? This is what the gospel does. And here's what's astounding. And it's also what's required of resiliency is study after study has been done for a, a podcast I do. I talked with an author named Drew Dick lately and we talked a little bit about his book, uh, Generation X Christian. And I asked him, what was your key finding? And he's like, well, lots of things, but if I had to narrow it down to one, it would be this. Wherever there was strong relationships of young people with, with, with solid Christians older than themselves, that was the key to not just remaining in church, but having deep, committed faith. A few years ago, there was a study, a nationwide study done in Canada called Hemorrhaging Faith. Guess what? Exact same results. Two, two, two areas. Parents, authentic faith of their parents, that they would see the authenticity in it, by and large. My, my parents love Jesus and are pursuing Jesus. And the other, that outside of their parents, they would also have those investing in them who are older in the faith. We're, we're using some data from a book called Faith for Exiles for our series. Of course, they come up with the exact same findings. What fosters resiliency in young disciples of Jesus is meaningful relationships in the church with those older than them. So I want us to look at a little bit of that data. First, we'll look at this idea of meaningful relationships in the church. And when I say meaningful relationships, what I mean by that is being devoted to fellow believers we want to be around and we want to become. And as you can see in the green, we have the resilient disciples and far and away, the results are so much stronger for the resilience. Answering the question, uh, responding to the statement, the church is a place where I feel I belong, 88% of resilient disciples affirm that they do in their church. 5% of prodigals, ex-Christians, those who've walked away, have a sense or had a sense that they belonged in their church. There's someone in my life who encourages me to grow spiritually. 85% of resilient disciples are saying yes. Only 50% of habitual churchgoers all the way down to 23% of ex-Christians. You walk away and what you discover is that there isn't someone in your life connected into the church that you're participating in who's encouraging you in the faith or anyone that's encouraging you in the faith at all. 
When it, uh, responding to the statement, I am connected to a community of Christians, 82% of re- resilient disciples say yes. For me, participation in church means exactly that. I'm connected to a community of Christians. Now, I can only manufacture that for you so much. That becomes a environment of a culture of a church, that it's embracing people, loving people well in light of what Jesus has done for all of us. When growing up, I had close personal friends who were adults from my church. 77% of those who are resilient as disciples, meaning when we look at the Bible and what it calls disciples to look like, there's, there's a similarity there. It's the same definition. The resilient, 77% of them are like, yes, I had close relationships with those older than me in my church. I admire the faith of my parents. 72% of resilience affirm that. 29% of nomads of those unchurched who claim to have faith but aren't connected to a faith community would say that they admired the faith of their parents. You know, it's been a while since we've gathered, but I often found it fascinating on Sunday mornings. I would kind of note, you know, the minivan would pull up Young family would come out and some families, mom's really leading the way. Kids are behind them. Dad's like straggling behind and just has a disposition of like, I'd rather not be here. Uh, Just statistically speaking, statistically speaking, about half of your kids are gonna not only really notice that, but embrace that kind of apathy towards the faith as well. And will most likely leave the church. But in the instances where dad's leading the way, in the sense that he's here, he's excited, he wants to hear from God and he wants to minister to others, he's engaged. Statistically, you know what? About 100% of those kids are gonna continue to lean in to the church and find deep connection there. Responding to the statement, I feel emotionally close to someone at my church, 64% of resilience say yes. Is there opportunity for growth there? Yeah, there's opportunity for growth, but it is quite uh, staggering to see the differentiation in those stats. When it comes to the emotional climate of church, um, resilience say 83% of them say they feel loved and valued. 76% of resilience say like I'm a part of the family. Less than half of habitual churchgoers would feel that they have that. With those connected, connected with those older than me, 65% of resilient disciples affirm that. That could grow, that could get better. We can grow at this, but it's, it's significant. Those resilient disciples feel a relief from the anxiety of daily life, 63% of them. There's a climate in their church where it actually brings relief to them in their daily lives. 63% of them, only 37% of habitual churchgoers would affirm that. I, I show you all those just to paint the picture of really what Peter's getting at here. We have an identity as the church that brings different people together, all the ages, and, and, and so much other diversity, and we have Jesus in common, and we're to lean in, and we're to love, and we're to serve. First Peter 4 goes on to talk about, above all, love each other. Be hospitable to each other and use your varied gifts for the edification of one another. This is to be the climate and the culture in our church. I want to move on to verse 10, though, because I think it's also very helpful for us. It says this, once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Peter is using 
precise language here of Hosea chapter one. Hosea, the prophet, it's, it's, the whole book is really a story of him marrying Gomer and it not going great, it going quite bad, but their marriage being a picture of Israel's unfaithfulness, their marriage being a picture on display of the unfaithfulness of Israel. And so it says in chapter one, verse six, she conceived, that's Gomer, again, and bore a daughter, and the Lord said to him, call her name, no mercy for I will no more have mercy on the house of Israel to forgive them at all. Then we track it to verse eight, when she had weaned no mercy. I don't recommend that as a baby name, by the way. She conceived and bore a son, and the Lord said, call his name, not my people, for you are not my people, and I am not your God. Sounds pretty hopeless, but listen. Listen to the prophet here. Yet the number of the children of Israel shall be like the sand of the sea. Okay, he's starting to use Abrahamic covenant language here, a covenant he made with Abraham about descendants, which cannot be measured or numbered. And in the place where it was said to them, you are not my people, it shall be said to them, a day is coming, it shall be said to them, children of the living God. And the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together from different places, from different nations, and they shall appoint for themselves one head, and they shall go up from the land, up from the land. Now we're talking about Exodus language. And you know what's happening in the New Testament? In the New Testament, there's this Exodus language, new Exodus language, where the New Testament shows that Jesus is the new and greater Moses. And Peter is taking this story from Hosea, no mercy, not my people, and he's changing the relationship and he's saying, wait, now is the time that this prophecy is fulfilled. Through Jesus, those who were not a people are now a people gathered from the nations. Those who were shown no mercy are shown mercy, gathered under Jesus and his glorious grace. That's what God has done for us. He's called us out of darkness to be his people and the vessels of his mercy. Whether it be covenant-breaking Israel or outside of the covenant Gentiles, all those in Christ are recipients of God's mercy and together made the people of God. See, the identity and purpose of the church is truly stunning. It's built on the grace extended to us through Jesus. And as we lean into our identity and as we lean into our purpose, what we discover is that we are a very unique people. And if we would lean into that and live into that, God would do some mighty things in this time and in this place. How do we counteract the isolation, loneliness, and mistrust of digital Babylon? We live into the calling God has given us as the people of God and we forge meaningful relationships there. So I just wanna leave us, I wanna conclude with some practical applications for forging meaningful intergenerational relationships in light of our identity and purpose as exiles in the world. First, I wanna give you a couple of categories for putting technology in its proper place. We can't begin to be the kind of community we're meant to be in God's household. If, if we won't wean ourselves somewhat from the obsession of the digital moment. So there are some practical ways we can do that. Um, we can put technology in its proper place and we can know that we have when it helps us bond with the real people we have been given to love. That's an indicator if, if we have a healthy screen um, approaches. 
It's not in its proper place when we end up bonding with people at a distance that we will never actually meet or when it pushes us towards isolation. Technology is in its proper place when it starts great conversations, when it's a conversation starter. It's out of its proper place when it prevents us from talking with and listening to one another. You know, I found just, just in social media, for example, the debates, they tend to be almost humanless. Like, they tend to lack the humanity and humility and generosity that if we were face to face, we would typically afford one another. And that wears on us. And so we need to push ourselves towards real conversations in real life. Thirdly, technology is in its proper place if to some degree we, we take digital Sabbaths. Andy Crouch wrote a great book called The TechWise Family, and he encouraged an hour a day, not just to not be on screens, but to have a Sabbath from your screen. An hour a day, I'm not touching it, I'm not looking at anything intentionally that's on a screen. An hour a day, a day a week, and a week a year. Might be good wisdom. Fourth, there was a study um, to show it in its proper place, I think this helps reveal that. There was a study that, uh, that limited Facebook for a number of people to 30 minutes a day and then let the rest of the group just have at her with Facebook and they would spend hours on it a day. Those who were limited, who limited themselves to a max of 30 minutes a day on Facebook had less anxious, depressed feelings of loneliness. Less anxiety, less depression, less feelings of loneliness. And the same is true of any platform, the TikTok the snappy chatty, all of those fun things, right? Like just limiting it to a certain amount is actually good for your health. These are just proven stats. And so that's a way to have it in, it put it in its proper place. Just another practical application here for us. Intergenerational relationships are a two-way street. So I wanna give an encouragement to every generation in our church, every age generation, that really there's this idea of a reciprocal, reciprocal discipleship. It's not always top down. I'm older than you. I'm just going to dispel wisdom and you're gonna give me nothing in return. We should never approach discipleship, relationships, meaningful relationships that way at all. So every generation in our church has both meaningful contributions to make and blind spots to shore up. And we all can both contribute to the growth of those in different generations and be built into others as well. All of us can. It's not a, as one way street as we sometimes make it out to be. In 1 Timothy 5, it says, do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. So, so younger individuals are to encourage the older men in our church like fathers. Younger men as brothers, older women as mothers, younger, sis, younger women as sisters in all purity. Really, this is just godly relational wisdom of how we all as a church are to relate to one another. So older adults, I just want to encourage you to see the strengths of younger disciples that they have that your generation might not and recognize the potential for reciprocal discipleship. I'm constantly encouraged in our church and typically in different ways by the different generations. One of my favorite things to do as a pastor in this church, just a person in this church, is when I, the, the opportunities I get to sit with older saints, like our oldest saints, and pray with them. But, but what I mean by that is like just hear them pray. I just love to hear our oldest saints pray. I feel like I'm, I'm taken to school <laughs> and, and taught, oh man, that's how you pray, oh wow. And it's just so rich. 
At the same time, I'm, I'm deeply encouraged by our, uh, the young Christians, the youngest of Christians in this church and their passion and their fire and their desire to do something meaningful in the world because of the gospel and, and, it, and it kindles something in me to just keep driving and recognize, man, that's what this life is for. And I get so encouraged by them as well. I also want to encourage us all, spend time with people whose faith you want to emulate. Find those whose faith you, you admire and you want to emulate. Find them and spend time with them. This is easier said than done. I, I led our young adult ministry years ago and to a young adult, they all voiced that they desired to have someone older than them investing in them in the faith. But very few of them were able to make that connection and it's very hard to make that connection for them because it, there's, a, there's, a, there's a draw of admiring and wanting to emulate that has to exist there. But it's worth it. It's worth it to strive for it. I, I heard recently that the, the, the five people in your life that most influence you, that are usually the closest to you, but really influential in your life as well, the five of them, if they all were to gain five pounds, you would also gain five pounds. But, but the other way is also true. If, if those five biggest influencers in your life were to all lose five pounds, you would also lose five pounds. The point is, what that tells us is who you choose to spend time with and be influenced by matters. It matters a great deal. So identify people around you that you're drawn to because of their faith and hang out with them. And they will rub off on you. So pursue them. Strike up those relationships. You know, the relational outcomes we're striving for in this practice it, the top relational predictors of resilient Christians are these, that I feel connected to a community of Christians, that the church is a place where I feel I belong, where I feel loved and valued in my church, and I feel connected to people older than me in my church. I, I, I want you to see the importance of this. Forging meaningful intergenerational relationships will breed resilience in the discipleship of our church, but it's gonna take work and it's going to press us against some of the winds of, of the cultural moment. It's gonna take work, it's gonna be hard, but how do we counteract the isolation, loneliness, and mistrust of digital Babylon? We live into the identity and purpose God has given us as the people of God, and we forge meaningful relationships there. Let me pray. Jesus, I'm so convinced of the importance of this. And I ask, Lord, that as uh, those in our church make a concerted effort in the coming days, in the coming weeks, uh, to apply this to their lives, God, I, I pray for your mercy in that. I pray for your grace in that. I pray for uh, divine encounters in that, running into each other in the hardware store after praying, Lord, <laughs> strike up a relationship here. God, I ask for that. Lord, I ask that, that, that you would build upon a culture that I know already exists here at Central, but Lord, build into it more for the good of one another, for the resilience of the disciples we make in this place. Lord, we all are a royal priesthood. We all have ministry to do. Lord, would you help us in it? Would you grow us as disciples by growing us in deeper love and relationship, brotherly and sisterly love for one another? in our church. In Jesus' name, amen.